Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I am so excited because today is the first episode of season four of the Right to Read Initiative, and I have someone that I kind of viewed as a mentor along my journey of science of reading join me today, and that is Ms. Lynn Givens from Florida and the creator of Connect to Comprehension. Welcome, Lynn. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well, Catherine. It's good to see you again. And thank you for including me as one of your mentors. That's That just does my heart good. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, of course. Well, now today we're going to be talking to each other a couple of times this week. And today we're focusing on your journey to give listeners an understanding of who you are and how you've come to your understanding of how we learn to read. And, you know, you, you've been in this for a few years now. 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got quite the perspective versus some of the, you know, the newer teachers that are yeah. just coming in. So today we're going to be focusing on your journey. On Wednesday, if you're, you're catching this live, we are talking about your thoughts about reading. And then on Friday, we are looking into what we've known for at least 20 years uh, and seeing that you have the experience that you do. I'm sure there's going to be things that you're like, yeah, you know what? We've known this for decades and it really shouldn't be news. Okay. That sounds good. All right. So do you want to give just a little bit of background of who you are and where you're from before we get started? Uh, well, I, uh, I'm in Tallahassee now, lived in Atlanta for most of my grown-up life, moved to Tallahassee uh, about 17 years ago to take a job at the Florida Center for Reading Research, um, decided we loved it, and we've been here ever since. Wonderful. All right, then. So you, you finished high school, and uh, where do you start out? Well, I went to University of North Carolina. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then uh, I transferred to uh, University of Florida and um, got a bachelor's degree, but I still didn't really know what I was going to do. And so I uh, moved to Atlanta and took a job as a bookkeeper, although I had no experience as a bookkeeper. And one day I got a call from a, a friend of mine who knew me very well. And he said, from University of Florida, and he said, Lynn, I know what you need to do. And I said, well, Vic, what is that? And he said, you need to go to Georgia State and you need to talk to Dr. Eugene Ensminger, who's head of the special ed program there. And you need to go through his program. And I said, I, I don't think I want to be a teacher. And he said, no, I know you and I know this is what you were called to do. So please go talk to him. So I did. I went down to Georgia State and talked to Dr. Ensminger, and he said, well, um, you can give this a try to get your master's in uh, specific learning disabilities. You can try it for a semester or two. And because way back then, uh, they there were not very many special ed teachers. It was a new field in this early 70s. And so they were the um, state of Georgia was willing to pay you to go to school to get a degree in special education. And then uh, for every year you, for every year you taught, they would pay a year of college. 
So you had to commit to teaching for several years. And I thought, well, that sounded like a good idea. I didn't have much money. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll give this a try. And I did, and I was hooked. I mm -hmm. just immediately, uh, my friend Vic was right. This was what I was called to do. And I have been doing it ever since. Um, but, but the interesting thing was starting on my journey, and this has been a very convoluted journey, but I think I wound up in the right place. Um, but when I took those courses um, for my master's in specific learning disabilities, I learned about different kinds of learning disabilities, but I only had one course in phonics. That was it. That was the only methods course I had. And I remember that I made a flip book. I still have the flip book with phonemes where you could flip. We still use those, right? Mm -hmm. In the 70s, I cut, cut apart these pieces and made a flip book. And that was the only training uh, I had in, in teaching reading. That was it. And I had a master's degree in special education. Pitiful. But that was where things were back then. Well, you know, now... Uh, there are people who have master's degree in special education with, you know, in learning disabilities that don't even have that an understanding of, you know, phonological awareness and what the phonemes right, are right, the phonics, right. right? It's so sad because we know so much now and um, it's just a shame that it's not getting to the university. Some universities are doing a wonderful job, but yeah. there are a lot that, that aren't. So I went from uh, from getting my master's to teaching in an elementary school. And I had uh, a class of learning disabled students. I started out with fourth through sixth grade in a, um, a I guess it was a Title I school. I didn't know about Title I then, but it was a Title I school. And I really didn't know what I was doing, Catherine. I didn't know. And, and I was given a core reading program and I basically just went through the pages of the core reading program. Um, I, I took kids in small groups. I met with them one-on-one. -on -one. I had about 10 students. Um, and I did the best I could with what I knew then, which wasn't very much. But it really bothered me that I had several students who probably were dyslexic. I didn't know about dyslexia, but... Um, and I couldn't really make much progress with them with what I was doing. And I remember getting into the shower sometimes thinking about one little guy whose name was Curtis and thinking, what can I do to help Curtis with what I know? I thought I knew everything there was available to know, um, but I, I, I just wasn't being effective and I didn't really know what to do. Um, and uh, I went from that from that job in several schools to being the head of a team that wrote IEPs. Hold on, I just want to circle back sure. on that. So here you are, you know, trained teacher in special education, and <laughs> you're working with a student that you feel that you can't help. And at that point, was it kind of just accepted that okay, well, there's some kids that are just not going to learn how to read and it was more of a well he can't do it not we just don't know how to yet I it just niggled at me every day it just was like I, I thought I've got to be able to do this I've got a master's degree for goodness sakes I should be able to help this little guy and he's struggling and I can't help him and I continued to try different things and to do what I knew 
to do, but it was very limited. Um, and so, you know, he went on and I guess went to middle school, went to high school and probably still couldn't read. Um, some of the students I had made progress, some minimal progress, but this one little guy was just stuck. He's just stuck. And boy, I wish I could go back and relive that. And I think I could help now, yes. <laughs> but I couldn't help them. So no, I, I, I knew Catherine that I wasn't doing what I should be doing, but I just, you know, you do what you, what you can with what you know. And what I knew was limited, but I didn't realize how limited it was at the time. Um, but then my journey after eight years of doing that and several years of, of working on a support team to write IEPs for students and staffing them and all of that, um, my journey took a wonderful turn. One of my student teachers I'd had while I was teaching in DeKalb County what, got a job at the Skank School in Atlanta, which is a school for dyslexic children. And she asked me if I would be interested in getting a job there. And I had little babies, two little babies at the time, twins, and I only wanted to work part-time. But I went and interviewed at the Skank School, and I was told that I could work part-time teaching grammar that I couldn't teach Orton-Gillingham because I obviously didn't know what Orton-Gillingham was. But the deal was they would train me for a year while I was working part-time as their English teacher. And that then I could go on to teaching uh, a class of students using Orton-Gillingham. And that's what I did. And it was just, a, it was like a huge part of the journey because I learned, I learned what Orton-Gillingham was excuse me, I learned about um, what dyslexic children, uh, what difficulties they have, how to help them. Um, it was just, it was amazing. And I was there for eight years and I continued to learn. I had wonderful mentors, Dr. David Skank, who was the start of the school and Dr. Marge Tillman um, were my mentors there. And they helped me all along the way and um, videotaped me and corrected me when I did things uh, that weren't like they were supposed to be done. And um, over the course of those years, worked through feeling like I was a, a strong OG practitioner. So that was a huge part of the journey. But um, I, at the time, we did a wonderful job. I had um, middle school students and we did a wonderful job teaching them to decode, but we didn't do a great job with comprehension. And I thought about that a lot while I was there thinking we're, we're supposedly teaching them how to comprehend, but are we really? Mm -hmm. We're working in um, Barnell Loft specific skills series. I don't know if you know about those, but anyway, there's one getting the main idea and one making inferences and one. So we would take the kids through these books and they would do the exercises and we would sit down with them and go over them. But as we know now, that isn't really teaching comprehension, <laughs> but that's what we knew at the time. Yeah. So again, um, I, I helped myself through the journey of decoding and encoding but mm -hmm. still had some real gaps in terms of teaching comprehension. Right. And that's a huge thing. And I think it's something that we're constantly up against when we're talking about best practices for teaching reading, because 
there's uh, a group of individuals who feel that if we're having that focus on decoding and encoding, we have to exclude the comprehension piece. And uh, that's really at least not what I'm advocating for. I'm, oh, and, and that really disturbs me. And it's happening a lot now as people are realizing with the whole science of reading and how the brain learns to read and all the information that's come out over the last, what would you say, five years? Explosion of, mm -hmm. of knowing about this. Now people are so targeted, focused on teaching decoding that sort of we're back to that whole idea of just teach decoding and kids will be okay. Yeah. And that's not the case, as you and I well know. So that's very disturbing. And we'll talk more about that at, in uh, sessions two and three, because I have some really strong thoughts about that. And I know you do, too, that that we have to include comprehension in our teaching, that kids don't just automatically learn to comprehend because they can read. Definitely. And, you know, that that need for explicitness. Yes. And uh, looking at those students that struggle the most and making sure they have the instruction they need while still being able to have that differentiation for the higher achieving students and recognizing that some of the same skills are essential. I, you know, I remember working with a student who was in grade three and he, um, English was a second language, but this was a kid that, you know, did um, Chinese school could read like you wouldn't have thought there would have been any problem because he was very intelligent at surface level understanding. Yes. Uh, and surface level reading skills. And you could tell like once I worked with him a bit, he was just memorizing it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, not recognizing how to dig deeper to right. understand what he was reading. I mean, in grade three, there's only so much you can do, but still. Well, you can do a lot, I think, if you, you know. Oh, no, but I mean, you're not going to be asking them for a philo philosophical argument. Oh, exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> right. You have to stick to appropriate comprehension right. at the right. level. Right. But you right. can include syntax instruction. Yes. In kindergarten. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so shall I go on with my journey? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so here I am at the Skank School for eight years, learned how, learned Orton Gillingham, learned all the rules, learned how to teach, um, felt great, worried about comprehension. Uh, from there, I took a job as a learning specialist at a private school in Atlanta, and I worked one-on-one -on -one with students, and I did the best I could with what I knew at that point, and I actually taught quite a few kids to read. I'll never forget one student uh, much later invited me to her graduation. And I went and she introduced me to her friend. She said, this is Mrs. Given. She taught me how to read. And I'll never forget that because I did. But reading at that point was decoding, was how to take a passage and, and read it. So um, again, doing the best I could do with what I knew. Um, during that time at the private school where I was for, hmm, I think about 11 years, I continued to learn. Uh, I went to a lot of um, 
IDA conferences whenever I could, wherever I could. And some of those sessions really um, helped me along my journey. And I'll mention several. I went to one given by Dr. Torgerson, who later became my mentor at the Florida Center for Reading Research, um, who talked about um, teaching students to read in with isolated words first and then to build automaticity, accuracy and automaticity with words and then phrases and then decodable text. And so sort of like a light came on and I went, oh, okay, okay, so I get that. And I went to another um, workshop I'll never forget, which was a, which was um, on the work that Louisa Motes, wasn't given by Louisa Motes, but it was on the work that Louisa Motes was doing with phonemic awareness and phoneme graphing mapping. And that just blew my mind, how you could go from phonemic awareness to phonics, teach kids to map sounds. And this was many, still many years ago. Um, we're talking now maybe the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was brand new information to me. Dr. Torgerson had published a lot of articles about phonemic awareness, and I just read everything I could that he had written. And so phonemic awareness opened a whole new window in my brain in terms of, you know, especially if we have kids who are struggling to decode, what should we be doing? Why are they struggling to decode? Well, I would just throw up my hands and say, they just are, we have to slow down. But the whole idea of phonemic awareness was new to me then. And so I started including that in the teaching that I was doing and saw some real changes in students um, when I started to include that component of reading. Um, I also learned a lot about the codable text and why the codable texts are so important during that time. And I discovered the high noon readers that I absolutely love and they became the basis for connect the comprehension down the road. Um, but that was, so that was an interesting time, not really learning so much from the people at the school where I was, cause I was supposed to be leading them, yeah. but learning through through conferences and continuing to read. And the IDA conferences were absolutely fabulous and gave me so much of what I needed at that time. Um, so that, that was really helpful. I still knew that I had a lot of gaps in my learning, but I was coming along, my journey was, was moving along and I was adding pieces to the puzzle of how do we teach struggling readers, dyslexic students. How do we teach these kids to read? So I had the phonics part. I had the phonemic awareness part. I knew a little bit about fluency. The idea of comprehension was still kind of a blur for me. Um, but that next part was coming. Um, let me see where I am in my journey. <laughs> well, you're at the IDA conferences and you're at that okay, at the IDA conferences. I'm at the private school. Mm -hmm. um, we we decided that we would move um, and we, we were in Atlanta. We decided our kids had grown. We were tired of the traffic. We decided we'd move to Florida where my husband has lots of relatives. And um, I, at one of the IDA conferences where Dr. Torgerson was talking, I went up and handed him my resume, brazen person I was, and said, if you ever need anybody who has what I have to offer, please give me a call. Well, that was kind of crazy. But three weeks later, I got an email from him saying, 
would you like to interview for a job that, that is working on a grant, an intervention grant? And of course, I said, yes, 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 flew down to interview, got the job. And that is the next huge part of my journey, uh, the biggest part, really. Well, um, and one thing that I remember from one of our previous conversations uh, that really uh, helped me feel a real connection to you was that I believe he asked you about um, who you thought you could teach to read. Yes. yes. And you said right. anybody that could comprehend spoken language. Right. Or along right. those lines. Yes. Yes. And uh, that was the yeah. first question in my interview. Mm -hmm. Thank you for remembering that. I had forgotten. So it's good to, to remind me of that. Um, and that that time at FCRR was probably the most valuable um, time that, that I could ever have spent. When I started out, Dr. Torgerson said, and I was director of intervention, so I had a big title and I was mm -hmm. important kind of. Um, I was in charge of directing intervention for the state of Florida, but I didn't really know enough to do that. He hired me kind of on faith. And uh, for the first month, said, I don't want you to talk to anybody. I don't want you to go anywhere. I just want you to read. So every week, every day almost, he would drop off stuff in my office, research articles. We started with Lene Airy. We went through Louisa Motes. We went through everything that I needed to know about research and where we were at that time. Um, that was in 2004, still a long time ago. And mm -hmm. reading first, was really in its heyday, which was the federal program um, to teach kids how to read. And the National Reading Panel had come out in 2000, 2001 with their findings. So this was a really important time in the idea of how to teach students to read. So everybody was just scrambling to read all the National Reading Panel report to understand what they were saying, to look at the research that was being done. It was a really exciting time. Um, and, and that was just a, a huge, that was like an explosion of knowledge. Um, I think we're having a little, a, a mini version of that today um, in, in 2022, 2023, as people are learning more about what the science of reading is. I think it's similar, a similar time, maybe not as big an explosion, but a similar kind of explosion. But um, now it's with the teachers and not just the academics. And that's yes. the important component. Right? Yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, so um, after my month of learning, um, I went to districts in Florida to see what they were doing with these struggling students and found out that really not much was happening, that people were even farther behind where I was. You know, it was just, nothing was happening. And I went back and reported to Dr. Torgerson and he said, well, what we need to do is to put together an intervention kit, a box, and we'll send these boxes, we'll ship them out to all these places in Florida and you can train, uh, train the trainer, you can train the trainer on how teachers can use these in their intervention group. So what was in the box? Well, the high noon readers were in the box with some questions, not a program, but the high noon readers and questions, a notebook of phonics activities and games, a notebook of phonemic awareness activities, 
some notes on fluency, not really anything with vocabulary, but these went out to the, we were working with five, the five largest districts in Florida. These went out to the districts, the trainers, trained teachers, how to use them. And everybody was rocking along pretty well. And then the money for the grant dried up and the kids stayed there, but nothing else happened because the next, uh, that was for two years. And the next grant was to work with middle school students. And I didn't feel like I, I knew enough at that point to do anything. So I went on and uh, took another position, still at Florida Center for Reading Research, doing site team visits to schools um, through the Department of Education. Uh, but um, part of that intervention kit uh, was the seed for Connected Comprehension. It was the very beginning, although I didn't know that at the time. But part of what I had put together was what eventually would become sort of the reading program that I developed. Um, so um, that time at FCRR, like I said, was incredibly valuable. And I think the National Reading Panel, I think we still would do well to mm -hmm. go back and read, if not the whole report, at least the um, con condensed version of their findings dealing with the five components of reading. And Catherine, you and I have talked about the five components of reading forever, but people yeah. still need to know about those and they still need to know how they're connected. Well, and the interesting thing there is it's not just the NRP report, right? It's been duplicated right. by uh, researchers in Australia, yes. in the United Kingdom. It's been yes. duplicated on English language learners. And I, almost a year ago, the Ontario Re Human Rights Commission issued their right to read public inquiry report. And again, it's finding these same components yes. as essential parts of teaching reading. And, you know, the, the one component that I personally don't think has had enough weight is morphology. Yes. Uh, but it does overlap how I see it between vocabulary and phonics. It's that next step. Yes. Uh, it has a lot to do with vocabulary and that's one approach to vocabulary is through is through word study is through morphology. So um, yeah, I agree with you. We haven't, but we're getting there. I mean, oh, definitely, we're, we're getting there. It's it's uh, we're all on a journey. We're all still learning, um, but we're so much better off than we were twenty years ago in terms of knowing what to do. Um, so I'm at FCRR. I'm doing the site visits. One of the people I was doing site visits with was a professor at Florida State University. And she and I worked together very closely. We went out as a team of two to all of these schools. We got to know each other quite well. Turns out she's a distant relative of my husband. So that was kind of weird. But um, we, um, we got to know each other and, and became friends. And she asked me if I would be willing to... Um, start work as um, a visiting professor, even though I didn't have a doctorate, visiting professor at Florida State University teaching reading courses. And I was at first hesitant to do that, but I started out with just one. It was the reading one course, and it was all about the components of reading. And at that time, I was introduced to three wonderful textbooks that I still have on my desk that still 
I still look at. One of them was the core uh, teaching reading source book. And anybody who's listening, buy that book and memorize it. But we use that as our main text. And so by going along with the text and uh, reading up on what I didn't totally understand, I helped my students get through that book. The other book was Bringing Words to Life, the Isabel, book on, Beck, Isabel Beck book on vocabulary. And the third book was Differentiating Instruction, first in grades two and three, and then in grades four and five by, um, I can't remember the name. Uh, differentiating instruction. Do I have a copy here? You know what? We can put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, and so those three books really helped me. And then as I went along and realized that I loved teaching pre-teachers almost as much as I loved teaching younger students, um, I, I took on more and more courses over the period of seven years I was working at FSU and ended up teaching eventually all of the foundational reading courses. So I taught reading two, reading one, reading two, differentiating instruction, um, several others. And the final, um, final course was a practicum for struggling readers. By that time, I had developed the beginnings of the Connect the Comprehension program. And we actually used that program in the practicum for struggling readers at FSU. So that was the initial data that I got on the fact that this program works. My pre-teachers actually use Connect to Comprehension to go out and work with struggling readers. And we got to track their progress. And that was wonderful. Um, so all of all of the steps of my journey um, have, have led me to where I am now. Um, I retired from teaching at FSU and went to work um, revising Connect Comprehension, putting together a professional development website, putting together virtual training for the course. And um, that's, that's where I've been for the last uh, almost 10 years. Um, loving that but it has been I have loved my journey because it has been putting together little pieces of the puzzle all along the way with thank goodness wonderful mentors um Dr. Tillman at Skank Dr. Torgerson um just and and others Dr. Fesmeyer at FSU lots of people along the way have helped me by teaching me what they knew and so I've tried to be a sponge as much as I could, soaking up all of that knowledge. And I haven't stopped. I'm still learning. Um, at 73, I'm still learning. Uh, and, I, and I think we have to continue to learn. But my goal now is to put a scripted intervention program in the hands of as many teachers as I can, because if teachers don't know what to do in terms of teaching reading, to struggling readers and they have a scripted program, they can do it and they can be successful. And the other mission that I have now is providing professional development to teachers beyond that program. How can you teach students more about comprehension? How can you teach them to self-monitor? How can you teach them to visualize? So I have courses on those on my professional development site. Um, so I'm not at the end of my journey, but um, I'm I'm uh, getting close. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, one thing that I wanted to highlight there, and again, if I recall correctly from our past conversations, this was a bit of influence from Dr. Torgerson, uh, is the fact that you said scripted. Yes. Oh, yes. And I think that's really important to highlight, especially when we're talking about teaching such an essential skill to students that are already struggling. Yes. When I asked him, I told him I was, uh, this is, I had left FCRR because I, I couldn't do this while I was there. It would have been conflict of interest, but I had left, but I, we were still in touch and we still are. He sends me a weekly newsletter. Um, uh, but I asked him, I said, if you were going to, here's what I'm planning to do. If you were going to write this program, what would be the one thing you could tell me to do? And that's what he said without a moment's hesitation. He said, we've got, we've got parapros. We've got lots of inexperienced teachers. We've got lots of teachers who have had some experience but aren't experts in reading. Make this a scripted program so that anybody, of course, the more experienced teachers will be able to do more with it, but make it scripted so that anybody can use it. Parents of struggling readers, homeschooling parents, yes, yes, yes. And so that's what I did. I took his advice and it is a totally scripted program. So yes, thanks for remembering that. Gosh, you've got a good memory and you've talked to so many people. <laughs> There's certain things that stand out, especially when they resonate with my beliefs um, as an individual with dyslexia and try, uh, in my own course to learning how to read, trying and failing with different programs uh, and knowing that it's important for implementation fidelity. I know when I was, a research assistant for Dr. Linda Siegel, I was going into the classroom and seeing programs being used, not how they were designed to be used. And that's doing a disservice to the students and to the program and to the teacher, because they may have received this promise, this eight-hour professional development on a strategy, a program, or whatever, but not really have a thorough understanding until they've gone through and worked through it. And having that guidance isn't there to take the autonomy away from the teacher. It's to ensure the learning of the student right. and the correct relay of information. Right. Absolutely right. Um, I had a thought, but I forgot it. Oh, well, sometimes when you say script, some scripted programs, um, when you say scripted, people think of direct instruction. Think of, think of you're going that it's drill and kill. And this is not like that at all. But it does give you the language to use with all the activities. It has all the activities, but it also has the language you can use to introduce the activity to students, um, to scaffold if they're having difficulty understanding. There's even scaffolding each step of the way. So um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, um, and we've had, I've gotten such incredible testimonials over the past, uh, 10 years. Uh, when I get one, it just brings me to tears when people say, you know, this is changing my students' lives. Um, so it's, it's been a good thing. I'm, I think, um, that everything I've done over the last 50 years, <clears throat> excuse me, has led me to this, has led me to to doing this and I feel like I'm well equipped to doing it because of like I said because of the journey that I've been on and because of all the wonderful people who've 
taken me in hand and said, let's learn about this. You know, let's learn about this. Let's learn about phonemic awareness. Let's learn more about phonics. You know, comprehension and vocabulary are tricky. Vocabulary, not quite as much because of the work of Isabel Beck, I think, and a lot of others, and because of the work that people are now doing on morphology. Um, I just read a really good book by Tim Rosinski called Greek and Latin Roots, and it explains how to teach those to students and how to um, involve them in activities that promote their learning with those morphemes. Um, so people are now focusing, more, now that we sort, sort of feel like we have a handle on the other components, we're focusing on vocabulary with morphology. Um, <clears throat> comprehension is still a bit tricky. And um, I, I think that people tend to focus on discrete skills more than teaching those overarching strategies, like how do you self-monitor? How do you know to check yourself? How do you know when you're not understanding what you're reading? How do you know what to do if you don't understand what you're reading? Those are, are to me, much more important than teaching main idea. Well, teaching main idea is critical, but beyond that, teaching students how to, to use metacognitive strategies, to think about their own thinking. And we'll, I know we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, and, and that's another area of, I don't know, particular interest, passion, is understanding the relationship between uh, the various executive functions yes. and reading development and how that influences our struggling readers learning how to read and the everyday student as well. Can you, can you talk? some about that because I know people are going what's she talking about explain <laughs> that well so executive functions are the cognitive processes or the the CEO of the brain that help us understand and control our behavior and and monitor and when we look at there are various different models to discuss executive functioning but I uh, I typically prescribe to the higher and lower level or order executive functions where we have the three lower level executive functions being working memory, inhibitory control, and cognitive flexibility. Working memory is that area of your brain that's allowed or able to hold information while you are using it. It's not the same as short-term memory and it's not the same as long-term memory, but it helps facilitate the understanding of text. And even for those struggling readers, it's what they use when they're trying to decode and encode words. Uh, then inhibitory control, and that's their ability to stop themselves from doing or thinking or saying things. So when you were reading, instead of reading something and then being distracted by the thought, that little idea that was triggered by one of the words or the phrase that you just read, you focus on the text uh, and you're able to stop yourself from reading on because you're checking to make sure that you have meaning. Together, inhibitory control and working memory are both needed for cognitive flexibility and that's the ability to consider other perspectives and that's what we are doing when we are reading we are taking the author's word and deciding what it means to us what it means to them and what they're trying to say 
Yes, and that's really well said, Catherine. Thank you. Um, I think uh, cognitive flexibility can even apply at the very simplest level. Um, I, I used to, to try to um, help my students with that by saying, tell me, uh, name a striped animal. And of course, they all said zebra. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're absolutely right. But there is more than one striped animal. Can you think of others? And some of them would sort of look at me like, well, no. And I'd say, come on, think about going to the zoo. And it's, it, that's at a very simple level, but it's what you're talking about, not getting stuck with one thought process and being able to consider other meanings of a word, other meanings of a phrase, tying it all together in a way and being flexible about that rather than getting stuck on even, going in one direction. Even at the decoding stage when we have, I can't remember, when it can be, um, why am I trying a like, <laughs> Uh, read or read. Yes. Recognizing or the pronunciation. Record or record. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Having the cognitive flexibility and the yes. awareness. Oh, no, that didn't sound right. Let me read it again. Read it in a different manner. Uh, the other thing uh, is working memory is a huge factor when we're working with students who are struggling with reading because of that limited capacity, especially at the younger age when there's a smaller amount of space available, the amount of the time that they spend decoding the word, uh, if it's grapheme by grapheme, and then blending it back together, they may have forgotten what happened in the sentence before or some of the earlier on, uh, you know, beginning Absolutely. phonemes. Absolutely. That happens so often. We see that with our struggling readers over and over and over again. Yeah. And that's why the concept of automaticity is so yeah. important, because it frees up more of your working memory to do other things. Rather, as you said, decoding, uh, graphing by graphing. Yeah. And then we need things like the inhibitory control when we're looking at reading fluency, right? Uh, Instead of just getting read as fast as possible, being able to stop themselves to kind of pre-read, get that understanding so they can read it with a correct prosody. And having the cognitive flexibility to do that and consider the different ways that they can read it before actually reading it with that correct voice. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and that's we'll talk about that another day. But of course. Um, I, I think fluency is another uh, hole that we can fall down. And the hole is thinking about fluency as words correct per minute. Yeah. How fast can you go? And uh, we have so many students who can read through uh, a probe passage quickly as as quickly as anything. But then if you ask them what they've read, they have no idea. And because they're not reading for meaning, they're reading for speed. So I think we need to get away. Uh, I have a course on fluency in my professional development site where I talk about the importance of considering all the aspects of fluency and what you just talked about. Accuracy, rate, and prosody. Yes, that prosody, if we don't include prosody, um, we can't connect fluency to comprehension. That bridge Mm -hmm. uh, is not there unless we make sure that students are reading with positive. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lynn. This I really enjoyed fun. our conversation. I enjoyed it too. Um, if, anybody, uh, are we, if anybody wants to contact me, um, feel free to do that. Lynn.givens at gmail.com. Be happy to talk with you about anything connected to reading.
And thank you, Catherine, for inviting me. You're welcome. Yes.